Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Macro Minutes called U-Turn. I'm Jason Dar, your host for today's call, which we're recording at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on November the 7th. The trends in markets that we've seen since June, higher yields, lower equities, wider credit spreads, uh, these pulled a sharp U-turn over the past week. The U.S. 10-year yield is down 40 basis points from the highs, and it's provided the impetus for a decent equity and credit rally. On today's call, myself and Blake are going to speak about our views on duration, which are not widely different, but focus on different aspects of fundamentals and technicals. Later, Michael's going to enlighten us on the U.S. economy, and Lori is going to tell us what this all means for the equity market. So the bond market is the tail wagging the dog at the moment. So we're going to get into the weeds on duration with Blake kicking it off and then followed by myself. Great. Thanks, uh, Jason. Um, so as you hinted in the opening there, I mean, the narrative shift in price action this last week has really been kind of wild. Um, what, what I want to do, I just want to really quickly hit on kind of the three main developments in the U.S. last week that were at the center of all this. Uh, first was Treasury's refunding announcement, which was uh, one of the most highly watched refunding announcements that I can remember, at least in my career. Um, you know, the tail risks around supply and demand certainly relaxed a bit uh, on that announcement. Treasury came out with a slightly smaller deficit forecast than expected. They pulled back a bit on long-end issuance, but we didn't necessarily see that announcement or that pullback as a game changer. Um, as we noted in the, the the piece that we put out after the refunding announcement, our modal view on term premium from here continues to be fairly benign. Uh, but we still see the risk around it is skewed to the upside. Um, to that point, there's um, you know going to be a lot of eyes on three, the three-year, ten-year, and thirty-year options this week. Um, you know, I think um, even if we have kind of priced in uh, the overall stock of supply coming, there's still the possibility that these flow uh, flow effects, um, you know, as markets have any difficulty digesting the supply, uh, still puts some upside pressure on yields. So uh, a lot of people watching those auctions this week. Um, on the FOMC meeting, uh, markets has interpreted uh, the meeting as mod- modestly dovish, uh, but I think that interpretation mostly relies on this assumption that there was really any set of circumstances in which Powell would have come out and talked up the September FOMC dots. Um, I think the Fed speak into the meeting, including Powell himself, who we heard extensively from, were all pretty clear that the bar to hiking, again, was was very, very high. Um, so I think not confirming that additional hike in the September dots, which is really what markets were focusing on. Um, especially with only one meeting uh, left in that fore- forecast horizon, really shouldn't come shouldn't have come as much of a surprise to market. So we didn't really see that quite as dovish, um, at, at least relative to expectations, as the market did. Uh, the third point, uh, beside the quarterly refunding and FOMC, was obviously the data. Uh, Mike's going to talk about this a bit more later, but I did just want to say that you know 150k jobs isn't exactly the sign of an imminent recession that I think many commentators on Friday seem to be making it out to be. Um, you know, just two quick observations I'll make. Uh, again, Michael talk about the data a little bit more later. Uh, the three-month moving average for NFP is still higher than it was at the September FOMC meeting. And remember, at that meeting, FOMC, moved, uh, FOMC members were all boosting their economic forecasts and dot pop projections. And the other thing, as for ISM numbers, both on service and, ma- and, and manufacturing side, uh, both of the prints this last week represented the fourth, only the fourth lowest prints of last year. So really, um, you know, kind of the the, the doomsday uh, uh, kind of commentary that surrounded a lot of the data this week, I think was a bit overdone. We're not trying to write any of last week's data off. I mean, it was absolutely soft on multiple fronts and 
certainly going to provide uh, some fuel to the Fed that you know clearly is looking for a reason not to hike again. Uh, but again, in our view, that was already largely con- consensus. Um, but I think everyone needs to take a bit of a deep breath. Um, only seven days ago, you know, our client conversations were all largely hand wringing over the back to back to back to back strength in NFP, CPI, retail sales, GDP. Um, you know, all this concern about supply and demand imbalances, questions about how we're possibly going to get to our year-end target for tens at 450, uh, or you know, uh, challenges to our call for cuts in the back half of uh, next year. Um, the way the narrative really seemed to be shifting on Friday, it almost felt like we we're going to have to start justifying our calls from the other side over the coming weeks, basically explaining why we don't have a hard landing or cuts priced into the first half of next year. Um, I do think that's calmed down a little bit. Uh, the, the partial retracements in yield this week have taken a little bit of the pressure off of that, uh, those conversations that were really taking up uh, late on Friday afternoon. Um, but still, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that there has been a pretty sizable shift in the narrative. Um, just to sum up before I pass it on, um, you know, we don't necessarily disagree with the direction of rate moves last week. Um, I do think the violence of the rally was significantly exaggerated by stopouts, a, a very crowded short positioning. Um, but for us, it's really more the degree to which the narrative seemed to flip from this kind of soft landing, even really reacceleration um, back to hard landing that I think was a bit of the overshoot. Um, medium term, we're pretty neutral on, uh, on duration, maybe a slight bullish steepening lean. Um, that's mostly because we're within about 10 basis points of most of our year end forecasts across uh, across the curve. Um, not only that, but at these current levels, um, you know, the risks around our forecasts are much more balanced than I think they were even a week or two weeks ago. Uh, and it now seems very unlikely to us that we're going to challenge the yield highs that we reached several weeks ago, at least before year end. Um, but I will say that in our view, the reduction of these upside yield risks hasn't really necessarily come with a boost to downside. Um, we actually have just increased our conviction in those kind of modal those modal views, which again includes you know kind of four fifty tens by year end, no more hikes from the Fed, and uh, cuts starting in June of next year. Um, with the economy continuing to show signs of slowing into twenty twenty four, I think outweighing any kind of these term premium issues. Um, I do uh, uh, want to say here that. Obviously, with a fair bit of humility, I do think we have already seen the peak in yields and expect uh, for, the, for the rest of your end to mostly be uh, uh, trading inside of current ranges. Thanks a lot, Blake. Uh, it seems that we agree on kind of the broad thrust of what's happening in the bond market in general. I guess from my standpoint, um, you know, simplistically, the narrative in the bond market, you know, does seem to have changed. Uh, prior to a week ago, it was all about uh, one-way risks. Now it's definitely uh, more balanced. It's not necessarily an uber bullish setup, but a better one than we've had uh, over the past uh, few months. And I think taking a step back, it's important to remember that the surge in yields that we had from June to early October was reinforced by you know almost a perfect storm of fundamentals and technicals. There was uh, high worries about uh, term premia, uh, big worries about U.S. supply, uh, changes to Japan, uh, yield curve control, and rapidly rising expectations for Q3 GDP. Uh, so this led to one-sided bearish bond market sentiment and you know, a buyer strike from uh, certain segments of the uh, asset management community. Now it seems like we're past the strongest point in U.S. GDP, past the worst of supply fears possibly, uh, past the peak uh, policy rate discussions, past the worst of Japan uh, YCC risks, and uh, probably past the worst of the uh, term premium moves. So now at a minimum, it seems that the balance of risk for the bond market, you know, are very different than it was a couple weeks back. 
And I think this means that the chances of being uh, 50 basis points lower in yields uh, exceeds that of being 50 basis points higher from here. <clears throat> we might need to wait for um, you know, some of this uh, market to stabilize a little bit after what we saw last week. Uh, but I do feel the setup now is uh, to play the market from the long side instead of the short side, at least for the next uh, one to three uh, months. And to conclude, I do want to say a few things about uh, Bank of Canada rate cut pricing. There has been a material shift in uh, what the market's pricing for the BOC. Um, you know, it was pricing another hike um, just a couple weeks ago, and now we have an inverted OAS uh, meeting day curve. So the market has focused on the dovish aspects of the Bank of Canada communications, and specifically the comments that the economy could be in excess supply this year and that they might cut rates before inflation reaches 2%. So we've had a violent swing in pricing. Um, it's moved now closer to our base case of rate cuts starting in uh, Q3. Um, there is some chance of the market now pricing in April or June uh, rate cut. Um, we think those are probably a bit too early, but we wouldn't fight the trend right now. Uh, the market is moving in the direction of pricing larger and sooner cuts in 2024. So at these levels, uh, relative to our base case, um, you know, we're probably more neutral as far as the OIS curve in Canada. Uh, but if we did get to a situation where a full cut is priced by April and uh, two cuts by June, then uh, the risk reward would tilt in favor of uh, paying. So with that, um, now over to Michael on the nuts and bolts of what's happening in the U.S. economy. Great. Thanks, Jason. Uh, you know, as Blake noted, uh, do you want to focus on some of the data we saw last week? Uh, it's worth mentioning that... I, I think a lot of that is coming from the impact of the UAW strikes. And what I mean is if you look at the, the payroll gains in particular, uh, it, it printed below consensus. But if you add in uh, the impact from uh, the UAW strikes, which was estimated uh, around negative uh, 33,000, we get a print that's uh, right there in line with consensus and still quite strong. And if you look at the details, uh, we continue to see strong growth from healthcare. That's a, a stalwart that uh, should continue to, to print strong gains. And we're also continuing to see uh, gains in leisure and hospitality and state and local government. Uh, I note those two because those still have not returned to pre-pandemic levels, and there are still uh, around two to three months of, of gains for those particular sectors uh, in terms of their average growth uh, to, to reach that level. So uh, we do see a path forward here where uh, the gains will continue to come in quite high, uh, yet we do see some weakness in the underlying details. If you look at the unemployment rate, and it's worth noting uh, that ticked up to 3.9%, uh, just, just as a technical matter, um, BLS does not classify workers who are on strike as unemployed. So the rise we saw in the unemployment rate is coming from other uh, factors. In particular, if you look at the uh, flow of workers who are coming from out of the labor force into the ranks of the unemployed, that is continuing to rise. That just means people who are looking for work are having a harder time finding a job. Additionally, if you look at uh, the continued claims data, that also is uh, continuing to rise. And another sign that workers who are collecting unemployment insurance right now are having a relatively harder time uh, finding work. 
taken together, uh, you know, those two certainly can be lagging indicators. But one thing that stood out to me as well on this this report uh, was the share of workers uh, who have multiple jobs, and there uh, that actually rose above kind of the pre-COVID levels, and says to me that that consumers are really starting to struggle with some of the price increases we've seen uh, on goods and services. If you look back at the past four months, we have seen real disposable uh, personal income lagging real spending. Uh, and that's concerning. And, and we're starting to see consumers uh, continue to draw down savings. The savings rate is near an all-time low. And we're also seeing an increasing reliance on credit spending. So taken into context, what we are seeing is some underlying weakness, not in the payroll numbers, but in the labor market activity that is going on. And how that fits in with our view is we see continued weakness ahead. Certainly as we head into the holiday season, uh, we expect that uh, the consumer will continue to slow here. Uh, we are expecting for a, a considerable slowdown in GDP growth, again, led by the consumer uh, pulling back. Uh, and, and a drag that I, have been flagging for some time now uh, is the non-mortgage interest payments uh, as a percent of disposable personal income. These are monthly flows uh, that consumers are facing paying down their debt. That stands now at 2.7%. We have yet to see the impact of federal student loans, both on consumption, that will continue also to add to that interest expense. Again, further solidifying our view that the consumer will slow down here in the final quarter of Q4, and we do expect a contraction heading into the first half of 2024. Okay, thank you, Michael. Um, you know, in the U-turn theme, uh, equities were under pressure, but have reversed in the past week. We've heard about the bond market in the US economy, so now over to Lori to tell us what this all means for the equity market. All right, thanks, Jason. So I'll leave the question of whether yields have peaked to my fixed income colleagues, but I did want to recap conversations we've been having with equity investors about what's been going on with 10-year yields. And quite simply, the biggest question in my meetings last week was whether or not yields have peaked, and if so, what should we buy? Um, we've taken a look in the past at sector performance relative to the S&P 500 over time, and then looked at the correlation of those performance with moves with 10-year yields. What the historical playbook says is pretty simple. It says you want to sell energy, materials, and other cyclicals and buy growth sectors, especially communication services and consumer discretionary, if you think that yields have peaked. Um, when we talked about the growth sectors that are potential beneficiaries, communication services, and consumer discretionary, we've really emphasized that between the two, we do see better valuations in the communication services sector, um, which does have a number of key internet names, media, and entertainment as well. It's worth noting that in these conversations, there was really an excitement among equity investors that I frankly just hadn't seen in a while. Equity investors have been telling me for the last few months that they feel quite stuck, unsure of how to proceed, and we really did have a renewed sense that they were ready to act. Um, in terms of some of the other interest rate related pieces of analysis that have been getting traction in our meetings, I'd call out a couple things. First off, our equity risk premium analysis. We do keep a very close eye on the earnings yield of the S&P 500, less the 10-year treasury yield. 
And basically, the two have been close to parity recently. And this is really a reversal of conditions that have been in place since the tech bubble. But at the same time, it's also a return of conditions uh, that really were seen throughout the 1990s when stocks did just fine. We had a very healthy equity market. One of the things that really caught investors' attention was that we've run a back test against different levels of the earnings yield gap against 12-month forward S&P 500 returns. And even though basically the two are at parity, we're still in an environment where you get pretty strong 12-month forward gains in the S&P 500 over time. There are levels where the earnings yield gap will foretell negative returns in the equity market over the next 12 months, but we simply haven't gotten to those yet. Another chart we've talked about a lot recently looks at how equities do when yields are rising. And we found that the S&P 500 continues to post strong gains when surges in the yield are 275 uh, basis points um, or less. But stocks do tend to fall when the surges are more than that. If we use post-SVB as our starting point, it's been about 168 basis point move if you look at the recent high. And that really contrasts with what we saw in 21, 2022, when equities got hit quite hard, but the total surge in yield totaled about 305 basis points. So what we've been through just hasn't been bad enough to take stocks down historically. And one last thought for me, kind of getting away from the surge in yields a bit, I think the bigger picture context here is that this move in interest rates did really help equities out in a certain way. And that it took equity investor sentiment down to oversold levels. So we have a lot of high frequency uh, data points that we monitor. And last week, something quite exciting happened on the AAII survey. We monitor net bullishness, and we found that that indicator went one standard deviation below the long-term average on the four-week average. That reverses a move we had seen back in August when that indicator hit one standard deviation above the long-term average. So we've gone very quickly from excessive bullishness to really, really deep pessimism. And historically, the S&P 500 has been up about 14% when you've hit that one standard deviation mark below the long-term average. So I think this is a really positive development for equities and improves the setup for 2024. So that's it from me. If anyone does have any questions on equities, the bond market, uh, please reach out to your RBC representative. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.